Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, um, and I'm here with, today with my guest, Andrew Warwick, who's met on the show before. Um, Sean, as you can see, is not with us today. Um, he's going to be taking an extended break to focus on his seminary studies at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, so I'll be riding solo probably for uh, for the next couple months, and uh, Andrew might be piping in um, once in a while, but he's joining me today to talk about this topic. <clears throat> Um, but just before we dive in, uh, we are part of the Society of Reformed Podcasters, so check us out at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. If you're watching on our YouTube channel, uh, be sure to hit the subscribe button if you have not subscribed already. Now to dive into our topic today, um, we're going to be talking about the concept of three centers of consciousness as it relates to uh, James White. Um, as you know, that is kind of blew up in, in recent, uh, maybe in the past month or so. Uh, but there's been controversy going around this, and and this goes back to comments that James White made uh, in a debate that he had with uh, Unitarian Roger Perkins back in 2011. Um, and there have been those, including myself, who have publicly talked about this. <clears throat> um, I had put out an article on. Uh, our blog called Clarification on James White, and James White actually posted it and and said some comments on it. Um, and in there, I address kind of at a high level what this concept of multiple consciousness is, um, and or, or really more so why it's incorrect, and tried to deal with the issue in a substantial way. <clears throat> Obviously, it wasn't addressing every single aspect of it, but trying to, to show... Uh, you know, why they, it, it didn't work on a logical level, historical, biblical level. Um, and and I, I think this is this is really kind of blown up, and, and there's been a lot of conversations around this, and other brothers have dealt with this. <clears throat> but really how we should be dealing with this, um, this issue publicly, we need to be dealing with the issue at hand, right, the substantial issue, which is, it, are the persons of the Trinity actually three centers of consciousness or not? Is that the biblical way to address this? <clears throat> and I think jumping to conclusions that we are writing off, you know, James White as a heretic uh, is not helpful and I think can be dishonest unless someone can demonstrate uh, that we've actually done that. And I don't think we've actually come out and said that or implied that anywhere. And both Andrew and I want to affirm we we do believe James White is a Christian and he's not a heretic. We want to clearly affirm that. Um, but we do believe that the language he's utilizing is not helpful and dangerous and has dangerous implications. And we want to address this further today. Um, but, you know, you can say improper things about God and, and not necessarily be a heretic yourself. Um, you can hold to two inconsistent truths it, or, or two inconsistent things, I should say. One thing might be true and then you're holding to something else that has uh, implications that contradict the, the other thing that you're holding is true. So you can contradict yourself. Um, so we shouldn't be, and this goes for both sides, we really shouldn't be too quick to label someone a heretic, but our opponents shouldn't be quick to assume um, that we're saying that James is a heretic with regards to this issue. Um, so we have, to, we have to be very careful um, on both sides. Um, I think, unfortunately, with, with James White, there tends to be this fanboy syndrome in, that seeks to defend the man rather than dealing with the arguments in a substantial way or really seeking to understand them properly and, and 
it was kind of, I think there's more of a tendency to write off the issue rather than really dealing with it. Um, and we have to be careful about that <clears throat> just because someone that we respect um, may have put out a position um, doesn't necessarily mean it's correct. And if it's criticized, we should try to you know deal with the issue at hand and not necessarily be quick to defend the man himself. So that's something we have to be, I think, very careful of. Um, so clarity of terminology when we're talking about God uh, must be exercised. We have to be very careful how we uh, talk about uh, the divine and how we address God and how we talk about his being, um, because what we say may provide the wrong implications, even if we don't mean those implications, right? So, you know, understanding this can allow for grace, like from our side as we're interacting with those on uh, on the opposing side you know we can we can come at it with with grace for those who are who are learning humbly and really trying to grasp these things but may not uh, have you know really understood these things yet but an arrogant attitude in light of constant correction is a dangerous road to travel and so you know we have to we have to uh, be very careful about those things and Andrew you can go in and pipe in if you want um, yeah, sure. Um, definitely, the 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 dangers of um, fanboyism is is very uh, real here because I'm sure a lot of us have benefited from um, James White in the past. Uh, yep. and still do for some things. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, I know he was very influential for me within the first year or two of Christianity. He, especially his debates with Roman Catholics and the like, I found to be very useful. Uh, he helped uh, me to understand Calvinism better. So I'm very thankful for all those things, but mm -hmm. he's just a man like everyone else. He's not uh, above criticism and uh, yeah, hopefully we can uh, show how to rightfully deal with the substance of a thing rather than just focusing on the, who the person is and whether or not we, and how much we respect them and everything. It's not about that. It's about the, the doctrines at, at stake here. Um, and uh, as far as clarity of terminology goes, uh, piggybacking on, on that, I think one area we need to be clear here from the from the get-go is there has to be a distinction between how we talk about God when we're dealing with uh, him as he is in himself versus more the economy of salvation, as some people call it, his work in redemption history. Um, because, uh, and uh, before I say that, I'll say we also have to be clear that whenever we speak of God in general, whether it is the economy of salvation or as he is in himself, which we could also call theology proper, uh, we always use what's called analogical language rather than univocal. And all I mean by that is that we use creaturely language, language that doesn't really fully capture God. It doesn't really express him as he is in himself because he's he's beyond our categories altogether. He's beyond our categories of of language and thought. His, his essence is just completely dissimilar uh, to ours. There's a radical distinction between creature and creator that's what the bible presents for us and that's what we uphold um but nevertheless we do have to speak about god so we're always using creaturely language when we do that and they do express some truths about god uh but it's in a limited creaturely way and we actually will have a podcast coming up in the near future that really dives into what we mean about uh analogical language how it uh conveys truths without implying there's true similarities in God himself and in the creature themselves. But that'll be another topic. So, yeah, we, we use this language when we speak about 
theology proper and when we speak about his work in redemption. But the way we attempt to use that analogical creaturely language is completely different depending if we're talking about theology proper or the economy of salvation. In the economy of salvation, we don't have that goal of uh, minimizing creaturely language that we do in theology proper. Uh, it's actually almost the opposite because the goal is to, to make the work and glory of God as understandable to creatures as possible. And that's how scripture usually goes about it. Uh, when it's describing God to us and what he's doing, it usually uses what Calvin calls uh, baby talk uh, so that we can understand it uh, regardless of our uh, our education or status. God condescends to humanity as a whole and not just uh, the most ph philosophical of, uh, of scholars. Uh, he makes it so a child can understand the, the essence of the faith. Um, and it actually models how uh, Christ himself brought the incomprehensible deity, the incomprehensible God, as close to creatures as possible by becoming a creature himself. He became man, uh, and he reveals God to us. Uh, yet, even yet, just as we understand that uh, when Christ became man, he didn't change his deity, the deity in itself still remained incomprehensible and above us. Um, and it didn't, it didn't change that he was incomprehensible according to his divine nature. Uh, we should also likewise understand that uh, when we or when Scripture presents the incomprehensible works of God in a creaturely way, that doesn't change the fact that he in and of himself and how he acts is completely above us and that we can't capture it as it is in that creaturely language. You still have that distinction, just like you have the distinction between Christ's divine and the human nature. So that's the economy of salvation. And that's how scripture normally speaks. And it's very much more permissible to use creaturely language and categories uh, when, when talking about God in that way. However, what, what James White is talking about here and what we're going to be addressing today is theology proper. It's about God as he is in himself. Um, our goal is really different here because we're not trying to make God as incarnate as possible as we might when we're dealing with the economy of salvation. But we're trying to get as close as possible to the limitation Exodus places on us, where God says, I am that I am. That is, he is uh, He is who he is. He can't be rightly described in any creaturely categories. He transcends them all. He can't be compared to anything else. He simply is who he is. And that's what we're dealing with when we're talking about theology proper. Uh, it's to understand how uncreaturely God is. So therefore, we need to be really careful about not introducing any... Uh, unnecessary creaturely categories and concepts onto God when we're discussing this. Uh, because what this is all about is really understanding the great gap between God and us and how necessary it is for us to have a mediator who is Jesus Christ, who came so that we could have fellowship with God. Uh, and so because of that, we mostly use what's called apophatic or negative theology when we're talking about theology proper. We're trying to say what God isn't. We're removing those creaturely categories and not trying to impose new ones. And I, I think that is what James White uh, does here in his, in his discussion. And it's not helpful, and uh, it, it just leads to, to confusion, unfortunately, I think. It leads to confusion, or even worse, it can lead to heterodoxy if you follow through on the implications. Whether or not uh, James White would believe those implications is a different matter. I would say he in light of his affirmations that God does have an undivided will, I would say that he doesn't really believe that 
his language of three distinct centers of self-consciousness is dividing the will. But uh, I, I would argue that's the implication. And we'll, and we'll talk about that more as it gets on. I just wanted to lay out this kind of broad understanding that we have two ways we can speak about God, his economy of salvation and theology proper. And in theology proper, which is what we're dealing with, we don't want to do what we do for economy of salvation, which is use uh, a lot of creaturely categories. We're trying to minimize that. We always have to use some, but we're trying to minimize it. Yeah, that's exactly right, Andrew. And, I, and to your point <clears throat> that you made initially about benefiting from James White, um, that's absolutely right. There's a lot of good things that, that James White has put out. Um, I know for me on the apologetic side, he was very helpful in formulating um, what I think is a biblical apologetic. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of good stuff that he has and that he's put out. So this isn't, we're not ca canceling James White or writing him off. Um, we're not doing that at all. Um, but we're, we're criticizing something that is fundamental to what we believe, um, who God is, the doctrine of God, um, and, and really trying to flush these things out and bring clarity to this discussion. And, and again, making, making sure that we are utilizing language that is clear and appropriate, analogical versus univocal language. And what does that mean? Like Andrew said, we'll, uh, in a future episode, we'll hash those things out more, but making sure that we're utilizing those proper categories so we speak properly of God and we don't add things unnecessarily to our theology proper. Um, and then finally here, um, you know, there, there, I think there's been some discussion that went around about, uh, you know, the, the young whippersnappers or, or kind of this idea that, you know, James has talked about this issue a lot or written a book on this or debated or, or whatever. Uh, you know, he has a lot of experience in this. Just because there are young men addressing this issue um, and errors in theology proper uh, does not mean that we cannot provide any correction to bad teaching taught by those who are older or who have more theological experience. Now that certainly should give us as young men pause. And it shouldn't certainly should give us caution because the very fact that they are older and have been in these circles more or have done these things more tend, you know, would tend to reason that they would have more knowledge of these things than we do. However, it doesn't mean that they are correct in everything. They are merely men, right? And, you know, this is, you know, especially as it relates to James, we, we're saying this fully realizing James is an elder pastor and has invested much time in theology proper, but we don't put our trust in men ultimately. Our trust is in the word of God as our final rule of faith and practice. And that transcends men, even like Brother White, trans. Uh, it transcends commentaries, transcends creeds. Our our final authority is the Word of God, and these other things are helpful. Uh, and they and you know creeds and confessions can be sec our secondary authorities, but they fall under the our great authority, which is Scripture. Um, so we would rather stand on Scripture and teaching on God that is orthodox, as taught by the Church. You know, long before James or any of us was born. Yeah. We, you know, we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us and who have worked these things out um, it, throughout church history. So, you know, who are who are orthodox. So we want to, you know, we want to make that very, very clear. Um, and, and kind of going back to the article that I had written, you know, I had said that if needed, the article would be updated. Right. And I think what this episode is going to be is really 
the update, you know, instead of going back and making actual changes to the article, this will be the clarification that is needed um, to that. And I'll put this a link to this episode in at the top of my article so that, you know, you can go back and listen to it in light of what I wrote. And if anyone comes to the article new, they have the context needed to be able to read it properly. So, you know, I just want to just want to put that out there. Um, anything to add, Andrew, before we dive into the topic and article from James? A quick comment about our expansion about what you're talking about with uh, us being younger than James White, of course, uh, less experienced. We do believe in something called Semper Reformanda. That means always Amen. reforming. Yes. And if we always had that attitude of if you're the younger generation, you can't correct anything that the older generation uh, believed then we never would have had the Protestant Reformation because the older men were, were Catholics and believed in work salvation and indulgences and many other things. Right. So we, we, yep. we, we don't want to have that attitude. Of course, we absolutely should have the attitude of caution and we should have that attitude of respect yes. for older men, uh, but we can't let them become our final authority. Scripture is our final authority. And I would also believe just in the history of the church, the men that we're standing on here are much older than the men James White is standing on. Even though he might be older than us, I think the position we're representing is is much older, and especially since I believe it's the biblical position, which is older than any of the great uh, theologians of the church. Amen. Amen. Yep. All right. So let's dive into our our talk. That was a long introduction, but you know, with this topic, we have to we have to be clear and provide a lot of context and clarification. So. Now we're going to dive into the actual issue of three centers of consciousness in James' article. So this concept of three centers of consciousness um, is not necessarily uh, or is not unique to James. Okay, you know, I will provide some context of that. This seems to be a pretty widely held view. Um, I saw this in William Lane Craig, saw this in like gotquestions.org and their definition of the Trinity. And even, you know, I have a quote here from desiring God, which is John Piper's ministry <clears throat> in an article titled, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? It says, quote, the personhood of each member of the Trinity means that each person has a distinct center of consciousness. Thus they relate to each other. Personally, the father regards himself as I, while he regards the son and Holy spirit as you. Likewise, the son regards himself as I, but the father and the Holy spirit as you. So, and that's end quote. So this concept is, is not unique to James. Um, it seems to be uh, have permeated evangelical understanding of uh, the persons in the Trinity. Um, now, with regards to William Lane Craig, William Lane Craig, I think, would take a, a different view ultimately than what James would hold to. He, he believes in a three-minded God mm -hmm. and, and, has, and denies divine simplicity. So he's much more consistent in this view of centers of consciousness than James is. Um, but the, you know, the terminology is there, the, the idea of consciousness in, in, as it relates to each of the persons of the Trinity. Yeah. And I would say they all have the same source too, which is this idea to take the traditional language of the church of three persons and try to import too much about what persons means right. onto yeah. the Trinity, which is really <laughs> backwards because the men who formulated those terms didn't import such things. They used persons in absence of really any other words to use. It just meant to describe the personal relations that distinguish them, namely fatherhood for the father, sonhood for the son, and uh, procession for the spirit. Um, so persons was just kind of like the only word that they had for it. 
And then other people have come along and say, well, it's not really persons unless they have like unique centers of consciousness and things like that. Why do you even care about the use of the word person at that point? Because you're not following the men who came up with the term and the Bible doesn't use that terminology for them. It's like, let's follow what the church has said, but actually impose a new meaning on those terms because we think that fits those terms they used better. That's, that's very backwards. We, we don't want to be, we don't want to be doing that. So yeah, I'd say the source for the error and someone like William Lane Craig and James White would be quite similar, but William Lane Craig takes it much, much further. Mm-hmm. I, I would say he's a bona fide tri-theist in, in implication of what he said, like totally off the reservoir as far as, uh, far as uh, historic orthodoxy. Uh, whereas James White, I just say he's inconsistent. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, and that really goes back to the, or what we said before about us making sure that we are being clear in what we say about who God is. Um, you know, I have Job 42 here, seven through eight, and we see God engaging Job's friends after they were trying to comfort him, give him advice, rebuke him, whatever, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, but this is coming near the end of the book. After Job, um, I think Job may have been restored at this point. Um, but it says in, in verses 7 through 8, And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And I think verse 7 here is is key. God held Job's friends responsible for what they said about God. Um, And they weren't necessarily trying to say bad things about God. They weren't necessarily trying to misrepresent who God was, but they still said things that were incorrect about God's nature, what his works and what he was doing. Um, and, and this was problematic. Um, but even with the best of their intentions, they were still wrong. And this doesn't mean that everything that they said was wrong, right? There were things that they said that were correct. Um, but the point is, what we say about God matters, and God holds us accountable for it. And so this is, you know, when we're talking about uh, removing as much as we can from talking about uh, who God is, um, that can be just as important because... If we don't, we can posit things that we should not back to God and say things that have incorrect implications, even without trying to. Okay, and and this is an exercise that is for all Christians. This isn't just for James White. This isn't just for those we disagree with. This is for all of us. And this isn't to say that the particular Baptist podcast has gotten everything right on the doctrine of God necessarily, or that we've necessarily said everything correctly. And we invite correction where we have erred. You know, please feel free to, if you can show us where we have biblically erred in places where we talked about God, then please show us. This isn't to say that we have it all together, but it doesn't negate the fact that we're all held accountable for how we talk about God. Um, And it really is a lifelong endeavor as we grow in our sanctification and our knowledge of the scriptures and our knowledge of who God is as revealed in his word by the help of the spirit who Jesus said would guide us in all truth. We will grow in our knowledge of God. Um, but obviously we're not going to be able to grasp the infinite with our finite minds in totality. 
um, like Andrew said, we, we, we're speaking analogically of God. We can't even with our own language speak in a way that really captures who he is. We can speak truthfully of who he is, but not capturing it completely. Even the language we have to use about God is compartmentalized by necessity. It can't, even the language that we use is not partless. It must speak in ways that are broken up into categories that we can't, uh, that we can't unify in the same way that God's being is. So it just means that we have to go the extra mile and, and belabor the point that we have to speak uh, clearly and about God. And it really should make us humble as we come to uh, come to these topics that we're not knowledgeable on everything about God and, and really help, helping us to be cautious in how we approach who God is. Um, so I, I think that this example in Job is really um, a perfect example on, on the caution that is needed as we come uh, to these issues. Anything you want to add, Andrew? No, I, I think we're okay. uh, ready to get to this article, right? All right, let's do it. Awesome. So the article is called uh, Person, Subsistence, in Debating Roger Perkins. It was posted on aomen.org on Christmas Eve, 12-24-2021. Um, and so the way we're going to do this, I'm going to we're going to alternate reading it. We're going to read the whole thing and stop and comment in different places. Um, and, and I think that's the best way to deal with it. It's not a very long article, so we should be able to get through this in a reasonable amount of time. So here we go. So we'll start off. I really hate to waste Christmas Eve on this kind of stuff. I really do. It is honestly depressing that folks who should and there's asterisks around should should be willing to read and listen fairly are unwilling to do so. I do not know what is behind all of this, but maybe someday I will figure it out. Um, and, and he's, you know, this is talking about the debate that he had with Roger Perkins. Uh, my first question would be, you know, are we not allowed to take James White at what he said? Um, you know, his terminology of three centers of consciousness is not helpful the very least it causes confusion it's it's created a, more questions than it has answered any of them um and, and at worst it implies heretical implications if they're consistently held i mean he claimed that the three members of the trinity are three centers of consciousness and it carries certain implications that we just cannot ignore um it, you know even if james didn't intend those implications and so that's why you know we're really addressing these things today yeah and I do think it's a little bit frustrating because it kind of starts out with this dismissive argument that basically anybody who's criticizing me on what I'm saying right now, it's just because they're unwilling to listen. They haven't heard right. me out. They haven't read anything. He doesn't even seem to be open to the possibility that, ability that maybe there are at least some minor things about what I said that weren't quite good or, 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 or maybe I should reexamine this portion like there's there's not even like an allowance that that could be a possibility that there's anything that really needs correction and i would just challenge that and we will challenge that today on the on the podcast not in a mean spirit just right. honestly like the, from what the bible says about god and how we have always historically articulated him i don't think the way you're doing it is a very good way to do it and it has some um bad implications and I don't think I'm saying that because I'm unwilling to listen. I think I'm saying it because I did listen and I've compared it to what the church has historically said about these things. And I, I find the statements wanting at, at best. So, but anyways, he, he goes on to say, um, 
I've used pretty much all of the standard terms over the years to describe the divine persons, such as subsistences, for example. Outside of a very small cadre of socially challenged geeks, I do not know many who could tell you what a subsistence actually is. I know Roger Perkins would find the term useful in a debate, though only to mock it as another example of uh, how far from biblical language the Trinity actually is. Maybe he would have gone for a discussion of perichoresis? Probably not. In any case, defining the term has been one of the greatest challenges in church history. I noticed that none of my critics have taken umbrage to my positive presentation in that debate. I wonder why. Could it be that in that portion of the debate, the central issue of dealing with oneness teaching is addressed? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, at least in my dealing of it in my article, I think the reason I didn't go to the positive presentation of the debate was the fact that, you know, the statement, three centers of consciousness, that was affirmed three times, by the way, um, I think stands on its own. You know, it would be um, as if James had stated something like, Jesus is not deity. You know, and I'm not saying that three centers of consciousness is a denial of the deity of Christ. I'm just making a, uh, a comparison here in terms of um, these types of statements. Um, but would I need any other context for something like that? Um, it, it, it's bad on its own. It stands on its own as problematic. Um, now, of course, there would be those who would not find problems with that statement. You know, if a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim or a Mormon came along, they'd be like, yeah, we completely agree with that. Um, and as there are those who would not find issue with three centers of consciousness from James White's camp. Um, but I think it carries enough weight that does not require a direct dealing with anything else necessarily. Now you can utilize other, you know, writings or publications or even the debate itself to clarify maybe what someone meant by it or to flesh it out further. But the statement on its own is problematic because of the implications. If you, if you hear Jesus is not deity, you know, I don't have to go and read someone else's work to understand why that is bad in terms of implications. It's bad because it implies that Jesus is not the Son of God. It implies that Jesus is not God, which has implications for the incarnation and all this other stuff, because the implications are bad. And so that's really, um, I, I think, where this was where this was going. And what, what's interesting is in the positive presentation of the debate, which James brings bring out here, and we'll read through. Um, he actually reinforces this. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't say, well, you know, this is what I really meant over here. When I said three centers of consciousness, the concept is brought out in the positive presentation at the beginning of the debate. Mm -hmm. um, so it really doesn't seem to make a difference uh, uh, anyways, regardless of the standard, uh, the statement standing uh, on its own. Um, and then in terms of subsistence, anybody. we'll deal with that in a little bit. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say that no, I don't know anybody who, like, when this has been the issue, have been saying this in context of a debate review or something. We, we weren't concerned with reviewing the whole debate. Like, right. How'd you do? How'd you do in your positive presentation and all that? Why would we bring it up? It's, we're only concerned with this part here. Obviously, if it was, it was just him speaking on the uh, on the spot, he doesn't really believe it, then then yeah, it would be a silly thing for us to pick at. It's like, well, exactly. you know, like he could have articulated this. Like he, he, he didn't really mean what he said there, you know, and, and then he's later come along and deny that he meant that and things yep. like that. But as we'll see here, um, sure, he expands what he means a little bit, but he still affirms the basic concept that he's yep. expressing here. So it, it seems like a red herring 
to me to just focus on like, oh, the context of the debate or why didn't you just quote it from one of my published works or something like that. It's like, well, if you said it in a debate, a debate and you still agree with what you said there, why isn't that fair game? And I'll also point out that on the dividing line, he reviews other debates all the time and, and he takes out what people say in the debate. I, I don't understand why it's not fair game for us to do the same thing. Yeah, it's it's very it's a very odd uh, and I think clearly a double standard that's being utilized here. Um, but he goes on to say, I went immediately to the heart of the debate. There is the slide from my original presentation, and I'll read the slide here. The real issue, did the son as a divine person, not as an idealized plan, not as a thought in the father's mind, but as a divine person aware of his own existence in the existence of the father in the spirit? exists prior to the incarnation itself that is in eternity past. See the point? It's important, and I guess maybe hard for those who do not take Christian theology into these kinds of contexts to grasp. The man I was debating reduces the personal existence of the divine persons to an idealized plan, a thought in the Father's mind. To refute such a viewpoint, which is they, which is they laid as a filter over the entirety of the scriptural witness— one must demonstrate interaction between the divine persons as well as thought and initiative on the part of the Son in eternity past. I normally do this by going to John 1, John 17, and Philippians 2, which I did in the debate as well. So from a later slide, the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ as God. If in fact the passage refers to the period before the incarnation of Christ, then it is plain that the Son preexisted as a person, was active and divine, and hence the debate is concluded for the Trinitarian position is established. And another, the Father and Son in eternal relationship, John 17, 5. Indeed, all of the prayers of the Lord Jesus demonstrate the distinct personhood of the Son, yet they will likewise prove the deity of the Son as well. These are not examples of the human side praying to the divine side, but of a divine yet incarnate person, the Son, communicating with the divine but non-incarnate person, the Father in heaven. So the issue was the demonstration of communication, interaction, love between the divine persons in eternity past. So Perkins then raised the terminology of their own separate mind or centers of consciousness as an argument not about how the divine persons relate, which would be the area of discussion amongst Christians, but as an argument against the very essence of three divine persons. So the issue with Perkins, a Unitarian, is the existence of the persons, and in this debate, their interaction with each other, as in John 17. Now, going back to the first slide, did, did you notice, you know, those of you who are listening, you notice the language that's utilized here. Uh, did the Son as a divine person, not as an idealized plan, not as a thought in the Father's mind, but as a divine person aware of his own existence in the existence of the Father and the Spirit? This is the essence of consciousness, right? Yep. Aware of something outside of yourself. So you can see that even if we did go to the positive presentation of the debate, it wouldn't have changed the concept that's being presented here. It's clearly a consciousness unique to the Son as distinct from the Father and the Spirit. And the implication is that the Father and the Spirit carry that same kind of consciousness individually in each other. Um, so it doesn't contradict that statement at all. Um, it actually just simply supports the concept of centers of consciousness that's presented later in the Q&A portion later on in the debate. Um, but what I find interesting in this response from James is that he assumes there's only one way to deal with Perkins' assertions. You know, we're going to present a third option here, um, 
with regards to what we believe is the biblical and historical view of persons. Um, but he's assuming that, you know, that we must refer to real interaction on a univocal level as it relates to the persons of the Trinity, at least to, to some extent. Um, but any other language that seeks to have no indication of, of tritheism and or dividing the Godhead um, is problematic for him, even though he wouldn't assume those qualities back to it. But he's wanting to somehow, for some reason, impose univocal understandings of uh, of the persons back to God. Um, you know, three centers, as I've talked about in the article, at least in uh, with some of these concepts, three centers of consciousness implies three minds, three wills, three agencies, as consciousness has no meaning outside of those categories. Um, and I think this is really kind of imposing, and I think unknowingly, a Cartesian understanding of the mind. You know, Descartes, is, it, that's what it's referring to, but it's Cartesian understanding of the mind, which as Britannica um, has said, is the essence of mind is self-conscious thinking. You can see these concepts are kind of I think influencing this, and this is what Mueller uh, Mueller will say that a Cartesian understanding uh, is is being imposed. It's idea of three centers of consciousness, and this is fine maybe at a human level, but again, we have to be careful how we talk about God, and we cannot use univocal language to talk about God at intra. This is why we use analogical language to talk about God at intra. Um, we have to be very, very careful. But it, and, and we're going to flush out some of those reasons here. If one is really conscious, right, they must be aware of things outside of them. And this is the concept that James himself affirms in that slide that I read. The son is aware of his own existence and of the existence of the father and the spirit. So he's this is the concept he's clearly assuming here. But consciousness implies a mind, and it also implies a will which to act that consciousness upon. So now you have a unique will, a unique mind, unique agency. Um, and if there are three minds and three wills, there cannot be any way to consistently hold to divine simplicity. And James does affirm divine simplicity very strongly. And, and we appreciate that. You know, like we said with William Lane Craig, William Lane Craig already has gone down the rails and really taken this, at least, I think, mostly to uh, its logical conclusions. Mm -hmm. But James doesn't do that, thankfully. He affirms the unity of the essence. Um, but unfortunately, this language leads to a division of the essence, right? If there are three minds and three wills, you cannot hold to this. If God is partless, he cannot have multiple faculties. If these faculties of mind and will are really in God, really God's being, then they, uh, then they must be part of God. They must be God's being if, in fact, they are in God, right? Mm -hmm. It must be what he is. So if you distinguish these things and break them up in this way, God now is parts. Something yep. not inherently God is making God to be, right? God is no longer say. There's something prior to God that's making God to exist in a certain way. So now there's something above God. There's something that's prior to him. God is no longer... The I am that I am is no longer say and independent of uh, of anything outside of himself. Uh, so this creates all kinds of problematic implications. And again, James Clear is not trying to utilize language that imply that has tritheistic implications, right? Or that undermines uh, simplicity. And even in the debate, he expressly denied a three-minded God. So he's very, I think he was trying to be careful where he was going with this, but 
again, the implications are still there um, in spite of the inconsistencies. Um, what I would like to know is if Perkins had been presented with the proper view, the biblical and historical view of persons of subsistence, if he would have responded differently. Um, I think if if he had, I don't think he really would have had anywhere to go. Because what happened was Perkins, I think, saw the implications of what James was saying uh, with regards to three centers of consciousness, and he saw that as problematic. Now, Perkins takes that in a very wrong direction and assumes uh, a Unitarian position, um, but it, it doesn't negate the fact that the problems were still recognized by him. Um, but the, really, the Reformed understanding of personal relations, if you look in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 10, says, what are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? Answer, it is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity, period. There's no other explanation. There's nothing else added. It's just the relational distinctions of uh, begottenness, uh, paternity, and spiration that are listed here. Those are the personal properties um, that are being labeled here. Uh, the Father is of none, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. <coughs> Excuse me. And this doesn't create any division in God, right? And this is really, I guess, the only interaction, for lack of a better term, that you could find in God. Um, but it's not a distinction that divides because it's a relational distinction. Mm -hmm. And, and it doesn't undermine simplicity um, as a result. So, and, and this goes back to God being completely unique and God being completely distinct from his creation. Um, I think Psalm 102, 25 through 27 brings us out very clearly in laying out, you know, that the creature changes and moves. The creature changes from one state of being to the other, but, the, but God does not. God remains forever. There's, a, you know, these clear distinctions in scripture between how the creature acts on a creaturely level and how God acts in his own unique, um, ase, simple essence. Um, but I, you know, we have to, we have to be careful because if we're not careful, we start imposing these creaturely categories back to God. And then God becomes more like us instead of more removed from us, which is how we, uh, we have to make sure we speak God as being transcendent, um, in a way that, truly distinguishes him from creation. Um, so we have to be very careful about that when we're talking about the ad intra works of God. Yeah. So uh, another thing he brings up is uh, the, the text, John 17, Philippians 2, and John chapter 1. And I think he's very right to bring up these texts in the context of Unitarianism. They're among my go-tos I would use as as well but the issue is he's as you said dan he's trying to impose too many creaturely categories on god from these texts when we have to understand that scripture speaks to uh, speaks to us in terms of the economy of salvation primarily so it's it's baby talk it's 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 condescending to us so we can understand and grasp these truths but uh we gotta be careful not to import more than what they're meant to convey to us so what these texts out there are meant to show us is that God isn't a monad, uh, and it, it it also shows that the distinction between the persons is not merely a temporal reality. That is, it's not just something that emerges in space and time, but really in God and Himself, it's like all just they're 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 not really there. The distinction's not there. That's not the case. And these texts are showing us that. It's showing that 
the, the distinctions between the persons exist in eternity within the Godhead. Um, but uh, we, we, we have to be careful not to import more, uh, more than that uh, uh, to these texts. So, so God is revealing something true to us in these texts, namely that there is an eternal distinction of the persons and that there's an eternal covenant to redeem the, the, a people for himself where the persons were, real, were uh, willing parties. But we must be careful to not impose creatureliness into the Godhead when understanding these truths. When we see Scripture talking about communication between the persons within the Godhead, we should not think that this communication looks anything like it does in creatures, where one person contributes something unique and the others respond. And when speaking of the persons being willing parties of the covenant of redemption, the pactum salutis, uh, we should not think of it as if each person had a unique separate will that could have agreed or not agreed, or that there were three acts of agreement and they all just kind of coalesced. Uh, rather, the, the reality is that the more proper way to speak of it, I should say, is that there's one willing act of agreement to the covenant that subsists in three persons, with the will and act of God being totally undivided. So there's not three wills agreeing to it. The, the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption that takes place within the three persons, was one agreement subsisting in the three persons, is the more accurate way of putting it. Because we can't divide the will of God without dividing the essence of God. And that destroys divine simplicity. It destroys mono, true monotheism, really. Um, uh, so again, the issue is James is trying to say too much about God in himself and trying to impose too many creaturely categories when discussing theology proper, when he should have been content to say that these passages prove that there is an eternal distinction between the persons, and he should have just left it there. He, that's that's the, the problem uh, both here and with what other men will sometimes say. Is they try to say too much when we need to be do, doing apophatic theology, negative theology, taking, things, uh, taking creaturely things away from God rather than uh, cataphatic theology and, and adding creaturely things to him. Yep, that's exactly right, and and it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how that can be, you know, it with regards, but with regards to God's essence, you know, how can they not be speaking to each other like me? That's the only way I can understand it, and that's the point. We can't understand God as He really is. We we have finite minds trying to grasp the infinite. We can't. Our language can't capture Him in His entirety. We can't. And praise be to God that, that He is who He is. Right. Amen. That. He's not creaturely like me. He's not down on my level ad intra. Um, or he would be more like the gods of the Greeks and the, the Romans, weak and, and changing and pitiful and corrupt, right? Mm. Um, so it's it's really a glorious thing that God is, we can not speak of God uh, in certain ways because it just shows how powerful he is and how great he is, that uh, he transcends all of these limitations that, um, are on us, and he is the great sovereign who rules. So it, it really is a glorious thing, in spite of the difficulties that arise when trying to comprehend these things. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, James' view of subsistences, because he does bring this up, and it's in the title of the article, too. Um, so he seems to have a very specific view of subsistences, and I'm going to read from his book a little bit, um, but I think it would be helpful to um, bring this out a little bit further. But first, I'm going to read uh, the positive presentation from Richard Mueller in his Dictionary of Greek and Latin Theological Terms, second edition. And I think both of these quotes uh, 
I know one of them is from the the entry persona, if you want to go look it up. And I think the second one is too. Um, but there, it's from the second edition of that book. He says, quote, both the Lutheran and the reform discussions manifest careful reading of the medieval systems with the reform drawing more broadly on medieval reformulations and Lutherans following the more conservative path marked out by Thomas Aquinas. In none of these usages does the term persona have the connotation of emotional individuality or unique consciousness that clearly belongs to the term in contemporary usage. It is quite certain that the Trinitarian use of persona does not point to three wills, three emotionally unique beings, or as several 18th century authors influenced by Cartesian, Cartesianism argued, three centers of consciousness, such as such implication would be tritheistic. And then he goes on to say, uh, it is equally certain that contemporary theological statements to the effect that the God of the Bible is a personal God point not to the Trinity, but to the oneness of the divine will in loving relation to creatures. In other words, despite the variety of usages and implications we have noted, the patristic, medieval, Reformation, and Protestant scholastic definitions of the term persona are united in their distinction from colloquial modern usage. In brief, the term has traditionally indicated an objective and distinct mode or manner of being a subsistence or a subsistent individual, not necessarily substantially separate from other like personae. Thus, in Trinitarian usage, three personae subsist in the divine substantia or essentia without division. And in Christological usage, one persona has two distinct naturae or natures, the divine and the human. This can be said while nonetheless arguing one will in God and two in Christ, since will belongs properly to the essence of God and to the natures in Christ, and in neither case to persona as such. Thus, in the language of the scholastics, persona indicates primarily an individuum, an individual thing, or a suppositum, a self-subsistent thing, and more specifically still an intelligent self-subsistent thing. I know that's a lot of technical language, and, and those who are familiar with Mueller know he writes at a very technical level. But he's bringing out, and this is really where, you know, his dictionary is trying to bring clarity, is how were classical terms utilized in Latin and Greek uh, with regards to different things. And in this case, talking about the persons of the Trinity. Um, but you can see the idea of, of person number one, historically, had nothing to do with three centers of consciousness. That was a, or consciousness at all, an individual consciousness in the in the persons of the Trinity, that is a contemporary formulation, according to um, according to Mueller, that came out of the 18th century. Uh, that means for the first 1800 years, there was no concept of centers of consciousness in the Trinity um, or in the persons of the Trinity. That's an important thing to keep in mind when we're talking about this biblically and when we're talking about this from a, a historical perspective and how the church has seen the persons of the Trinity. Number two, um, when we're talking about subsistences, the language that's used here by Mueller in talking about the historical usage of it, it's this, um, you know, this distinct mode or manner of being. This is you can see this language being utilized by John Owen when he's talking about the Trinity, and he talks about a person is uh, the divine essence subsisting in in a special way, right? It's a manner or mode of being. It's how the divine essence exists. Um, it's not dividing the essence. There's no distinction between being in person at a, at a real level, maybe modally or logically, but not really. 
Um, it's just seeing the divine essence subsisting as three and, and that's it. Um, and this is to preserve important. the unity of the essence and to preserve uh, the real distinction between those persons. Andrew, you want to say something? Oh yeah. I was just saying, and, and that's very important because if it's not adding any properties, any real properties right. that one person has that the others don't, it's, it's just a manner of being, as you said, it's, yep. the, the only properties that distinguish them are relational properties, which aren't real properties. It's just how they stand in relation to each other. And I've yep. used this analogy before. It's like uh, a, a, a man standing to the left of somebody and a man standing to the right of somebody. Like you, you can, you can predicate rightness of the man standing to the right and leftness of the person on the left, but those aren't things that inhere in the persons. And if you pop the other one out of its existence, you didn't change anything in this person at all. And that's what we mean when we say relational properties aren't actual properties. And that's why they don't divide the essence of God. They're only kind of properties that can make a real distinction without actually dividing the essence and, and giving a quality to one of the persons that the other doesn't possess so that's that's very important yep yep and that's really yeah and and i think dolezal did a dolezal was an article where he talks about how relational distinction does not actually divide and that's really where the the only distinction that we can make and that's why we we say it's relations of origin are the only places where we find the distinction because um those don't divide the essence we can still say god is simple but still over here say that there are three um, and that's really how we can do that. Now, can we fully grasp that? Absolutely not. But we understand those concepts at a, at a basic level. Now, I want to go into James' book a little bit. Um, James, we're going into one of your published works. So we're doing it. Chapter 12 in your book, The Forgotten Trinity, um, where he defines what persons are in God. And you'll, you'll see the difference, hopefully see the difference between what we've presented from the historical view of subsistences and persons and how James brings us out. So I'm going to read this section here. Again, this is chapter 12. Don't remember the page number. I think I got this from the Kindle edition, and Kindle's weird with page numbers, so I'm not even going to try. But it's chapter 12. Um, quote, this is foundation two. Yet we note the fact that another term is offered to help define the word person and uh, person that being subsistences. Why suggest this term? Because we are wont to read into the term person all sorts of physical limitations that should not be taught, thought of at all when speaking of the Trinity. Many people, when they hear of three persons, visualize three men standing side by side. Yet this is not at all what we are talking about when we speak of person. But then again, does subsistence mean anything to most of us? What we are talking about are personal distinctions in the divine being. We are talking about the I, you, he, found in such passages as Matthew 3, where the Father speaks from heaven, the Son is being baptized, and the Spirit descends as a dove. While trying to avoid the idea of separate individuals, we are speaking of the personal self-distinctions God has revealed to exist within the one indivisible divine essence. Theologians speak of each of these subsistences as being marked by particular incommunicable attributes. What we mean is that you can tell the Father from the Son and the Son from the Spirit by how they are related to each other, and by what actions they take in working out creation, salvation, etc. We'll talk more about this below. For now, we emphasize the fact that the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinguished from one another, and yet these distinctions do not lead to a division in the one being that is God, uh, end quote. So you can see some of the, the classical language here, right? Relational distinctions. But 
what James means by that here is not the same thing as what uh, we're saying. He's not talking about relations of origin. He's talking about personal, you know, pronouns, essentially. It's just in, in how their workings out in the economy are really what are distinguishing them at intra. Um, and that's that's how I take what he's reading here. And, and it's it's problematic. It, it's clearly not the historical view of what persons uh, were understood to be. Um, it's really just ascribing, you know, personal pronouns to them. And that's really where uh, subsistences comes from. And, and I think that's very problematic, as we've seen from the historical formulation here. Yeah, and definitely reinforces what he said earlier about uh, having distinct self-consciousness. Uh, each person having a distinct self-consciousness uh, compared to the other. That seems to be kind of what he's getting at uh, in the book, too, when he's talking about each one having a separate I and um, uh, you and the like. Uh, yeah. That's getting at the essence of what it means for someone to have a distinct uh, consciousness. But anyways, uh, I guess we'll get back to um, the next part of the article at this point. Um, so he goes on to say, when I responded to his terminology, that's Robert uh, Roger Perkins, um, I said, um, it is historic Christian doctrine to believe that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinguishable divine persons fully sharing the one being that is God. Now notice Perkins' response. Perkins says, so I'm going to ask you one more time. Are you comfortable then saying that the historic Christian doctrine of the Trinity worships a three-minded God? And then James says, now, if you were primarily used to uh, used to discussing these issues in Facebook forums or on Twitter, you might just mute such a person. But there are no mute buttons in a debate. Um, yeah. And I mean, Perkins was just simply seeing the implications of what he was talking about. Um, you know, if you're saying that God is trite conscious, then the natural implication is that he's three minded. And I think he was trying to get James to say that. Um, and thankfully, James denied that emphatically, and I we appreciate that. That's it's good that he did. Um, but you know it, that that's really where I think Perkins was going with that. Um, moving on, uh, James goes on to say, "You now have a very limited amount of time to respond to a Unitarian who denies the existence of the three persons using this kind of rhetoric. I am sure each of my critics would do a much better job uh, than I, to be sure. I mean." Maybe, but again, that really isn't the issue here. We, we've touched upon this, and, and Andrew said, you know, this, this appears to be a red herring. Um, it doesn't really matter in this particular discussion, uh, you know, whether uh, it was said um, under pressure or not. And again, if you, if you had said it mistakenly and he met later and clarified it, then fine. You know, we can, we can leave it alone, but uh, you didn't do that. It really, doesn't, it really doesn't matter in terms of the context. Um, but you, you know, you affirm the concept three times in the Q and a, um, it, but you've even criticized Perkins in, you know, in, in a debate he did prior to the one you conducted with him, you spent, uh, an episode where you, uh, criticized the debate had and went through, um, Perkins discussion. I can't remember the gentleman he was debating, but you had no problem criticizing him in a limited amount of time that he had and held him accountable for what he said. Um, so I think we need to make sure we have consistent applications of how we're dealing with these things. The point is you said it, you affirmed it, and you continue to affirm it. And that's what we're dealing with here today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really shouldn't matter where it came from. So he, he uh, continues in his article that uh, 
his response was in the debate uh, to say, no, that is a mis misrepresentation because it uses human language to describe what we're talking about. You like to use that terminology and talk about a three-minded God. Clearly, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. Therefore, there must be centers of consciousness to which love is a meaningful attribute for those words to be true. So, whatever terminology you wish to use, the biblical teaching is that before creation was, the Father and the Son were in relationship with one another. Uh, and he says, uh, Now I hope even my critics will agree that it is just too painfully obvious that I am saying the exact same thing in a debate context that Lane Tipton said in discussing the relationship of the divine persons on the Reformed Forum in 2016. By the way, he, he doesn't actually give the, the title of that uh, episode in his article, but we, we found and listened to it. It's, it's called Trinity, Processions, and Missions, Gaining Clarity in the Current Debate. But anyways, the quote that Lane Tipton said is, Here, the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct willing agents. They are distinct hypostases who will distinctively and particularly as agents in the pactum salutis. And that means that in addition to talking about subsistent relations within the essence, we need room for a pactum salutis where those subsistent relations are self-conscious, distinct, willing agents who do not undermine the single, simple, divine essence or the single, simple, divine will. Yeah, and yeah, and, and thanks for pointing out the title because I think that's helpful. If anyone wants to go listen to it, it's still up. Um, I listened to it on Spotify, so it's it's still in their their uh, repertoire. Um, and the Reform Forum episode, I think, was helpful, especially in framing the discussion for this uh, episode that we're doing. Although it didn't, it wasn't without its problems. Um, I think the, you know, going back to what James said about him using human language, I think the irony is that James' response to Perkins is utilizing human language with regards to, you know, utilizing these uh, these three centers of consciousness while saying that we should be careful how we, uh, not to impose human language back to God. Um, I think that's, that is ironic, and I think we've demonstrated that. Um, but in the, in the Reform Forum episode, and this is an, another interesting aspect too, Tipton expressly denied that the persons are centers of consciousness, uh, which is the terminology that James affirms in spite of the terminology that Tipton used, which was self-conscious. Um, so it doesn't seem to me that this really helps James' position um, because Tipton went out of his way to specifically and categorically deny the terminology centers of consciousness in God. He was, I mean, he made that emphatically clear. Um, although he, I think that you can say that the term self-conscious inevitably is the same thing as centers of consciousness, um, but he did try to make that distinction. So his meaning of self-consciousness, I don't think is uh, the same thing as centers of consciousness. And I, I think James trying to apply, and it's clear that James is trying to apply here uh, Tipton's meaning back to his terminology. I don't think it's helpful because Tipton denies the terminology altogether. Um so I, I think there, there's some clear inconsistency, at least in the terminology in its usage. Um, either way, both the terminology from Tipton and from James was not helpful, and they both have dangerous implications. Um, but, you know, when James asserts that he is obviously saying the exact same thing as Tipton, 
I don't think that's very clear. And I, I think that's that's not necessarily the case, given Tipton's denial of the terminology that James uses anyways. Yeah, and I would say, too, that um, Tipton's language in the quote we just read, um, it could have been fine if he was simply talking about the economy of salvation. Right. Rather than the than theology yep. proper. Um, but and I think it would have been possible to interpret it in that light if it wasn't for some other things he said in the episode. Uh, uh, but yes, in the economy of salvation, the, the son acts as an agent taking on his own role alongside the father and the spirit, who each also have their own roles. However, um, his language of the covenant of redemption ends up bleeding into his discussion of theology proper in that episode. And so he, like James White, ends up importing unnecessary creaturely categories when he shouldn't, leading to confusion. In my opinion, it's because they lean too much on the writings of 20th century theologians like Van Til when dealing with theology proper. And by the way, that's not to bash Van Til altogether. I also would identify as some sort of presuppositionalist. That's not my area of expertise, but um, but as far as uh, theology proper goes, 20th century is just not where, where to go. I'm sorry. It, was, it, was, it wasn't very good for a long time. Um, so, <laughs> so they shouldn't have gone. Sorry, were you going to say something? No. Oh, uh, never mind. Um, but anyways, uh, um, yeah, so they should have just gone to earlier reform men who, who would, I, would, I would argue were, were much better on this topic. Um, so Tipton does very strongly affirm divine simplicity, analogical language, and perichoresis. So I definitely do not think that he means that each person actually has any unique substance, such as a, a will that is not shared by the other uh, persons. So in his affirmation of perichoresis, um, he would say that there is no part of the self-consciousness of the son that is not interpenetrated by the father and spirit and vice versa, which is his reason why he uh, objected to the language of centers of consciousness, because it made it more seem like a Venn diagram, like the Trinity is a Venn diagram. They each share this essence, but then they have like a will that's off outside of it. So by affirming perichoresis, he's basically saying like, yes, they, they do have distinct self-consciousness. But like it's like interpenetrated and somehow shared by the father and the, the spirit in the case of the son, for example. Um, and I think James White would probably say the same thing. I know he affirms perichoresis, uh, but but the issue with this creaturely language of self-conscious, distinct willing agents when dealing with theology proper is that it becomes nonsensical in light of other affirmations. For example, if we describe each person as having a distinct awareness of, of I and not you, so I'm me, I'm the son is the son and I'm not the father. Um, so if they all have that distinct awareness in relation to the other members of the Trinity, how is that not a unique knowledge that the other persons do not share in, thus dividing the knowledge and substance of the Trinity? Because if, if the son says like, oh, I know I am the son and not the father, how could the father's knowledge interpenetrate that so he could also say, I know I am the son and not the father? Because <laughs> the father isn't the son. Uh, it, it's it's non, nonsensical. Um, but Tipton and James White might say, uh, actually, I don't know if James White has ever affirmed analogical language. I hope he would. Um, but it's, it's hard to tell from uh, things he said. But anyways, they, they could at least theoretically say that they're just speaking analogically. And so we shouldn't worry about those kinds of implications because they're not like speaking properly anyways. But but 
we would still have to ask, how does your language help contribute to the goal of theology proper? Uh, as far as I can see, it doesn't help bring out any truths of God and himself that the more traditional and classical language didn't grasp. And it only adds confusion, implying uh, wrong creaturely things about God's will, knowledge, and awareness. It's much more accurate and less confusing to simply say that there's one act of God's knowledge that's actually identical with his whole being. Uh, there's one act of God's knowledge that the Father is not the Son, who is not the Spirit, etc., and that this knowledge subsists in three persons without division. Um, so, yeah, you could speak in the, the sort of way that, like, the Father knows that he's not the Son and the Spirit, but you have to understand that he knows that through the one act of knowledge that the that uh, that God engages in, that the three persons engage in, and that it's not a unique act of act of knowledge between the persons. Um, the idea of self-consciousness itself, I would say, also implies a sort of reflexive action where, you know, you first have to probe yourself and then you receive your answer uh, that I just simply don't find helpful when discussing theology proper. Um, and as you said, Dan, it's a, it's a recent language. It's modern language. There's no real biblical warrant for using such language. And it's, just, it's not a matter of just words. I would say it's a matter of concepts. God doesn't think like that. God doesn't probe himself and find out who he is, uh, in the, which is kind of how self-conscious, what self-consciousness would imply. Um, he just knows through his one act of knowledge. Um, so I don't find it helpful uh, when discussing theology proper. Uh, and I don't think it comports well with uh, biblical categories. So when we're discussing um, this high level, God in himself, we really just should avoid this language. There's no need to it. Let's stick to the classical orthodox way of articulating God. Yep, that's exactly right. And I will say, you know, to the credit of the Reform Forum guys, I think the way they presented their position was far more helpful and um, I guess you could say convincing than the way uh, Brother White has presented it. And, and they were very humble about the way they presented it, too, um, which, I, you know, always kind of doing so as cautiously as they can in spite of the errors that they presented. Um, I think they they did a good job of presenting their position in spite of the inconsistencies that we found. Um, so, you know, to credit to those brothers um, for the way they handled that. Um, you know, and we don't we don't agree with everything even now with reform. They have some. Uh, they do have some beef with uh, Thomas Aquinas in a way that I don't think is helpful. Um, I think Jeffrey Waddington, who's one of the fellows at uh, at Reform Forum, has endorsed has a written endorsement on Jeff's book. Um, I'll have to go and check that, but I believe he does. Uh, Jeff Johnson's book, The Failure of Natural Theology. So, you know, there's some nuances there, but uh, but they're good brothers, and they are trying to um, articulate God as as best they can. Um, but you know, like I said, we we can we can say things that are hold to a truth and in and a falsehood and be inconsistent uh, and still be brothers. So you know, there, there's a lot of good work going on over there. But moving on, um, James goes on to say, you know, we're almost we're almost to the end of our article, by the way. Um, so when speaking to a Unitarian using the center of consciousness terminology, I was defending the personal existence of the persons not seeking to compromise the unity of the essence. This is seen in the rest of what I said to him. Well, that's how persons relate to one another and speak to one another. Fair-minded critics would recognize the contextual difference of speaking to fellow believers on this topic in debating Roger Perkins. 
Now, full stop here. I'm not sure if anyone actually came out and said that James was trying to compromise the unity of the essence. Um, I can maybe see how that might be taken by implication in, in the article I wrote, even though I don't think that's what I was trying to say. Uh, maybe I could have clarified that more. Um, I did note expressly that James denied three-mindedness in God. Um, but, you know, I'll note this to be absolutely clear. James affirms monotheism in case there was any confusion in what I wrote or what we're saying here. Uh, James does affirm monotheism. Um, and I don't think I was saying that James was a tritheist. Um, I don't believe he's a tritheist. I believe he's a monotheist who's being inconsistent. Um, but if taken logically to its end, it will lead to those categories, unfortunately. I have to add, too, I'm kind of confused how his response that he puts here uh, helps dodge the the issue here. Because because he, when he's trying to prove that he's not trying to divide, uh, compromise the unity of essence, he the quote that he pulls from the debate is, well, that's how persons relate to one another and speak to one another. Um, I mean, when persons in real life relate, uh, I shouldn't say real life, I mean, in in creaturely in the creaturely realm persons as we know them when we speak to one another um that's most certainly in such a way that there's more than one essence that's divided between right. them. I'm, yep. I'm very confused how that helps his his case at all but yeah it doesn't seem to clarify it in any way no no it, it's it actually seems to be imposing yet more creatureliness to god by trying yep. to understand the relations of the persons via how we relate to each other Right, uh, which is not helpful. Um, anyways, uh, he goes on in the article to say, likewise, missing from my critics was this statement, which came immediately thereafter. Well, again, as my book in front of you clearly indicates, reading human language into the existence of God can be very, very difficult, and we must be very, very careful not to transfer the idea that would lead to the very error you represent, and that is tritheism that you are accusing us of. So when we talk about divine persons, I clearly define what those persons are. And I, I would just object to that, at least in the book. I, I don't think it's that uh, robust in that section, at least. Um, but anyways, continuing in his article, it says, Ironically, my critics assume three centers of consciousness means inevitable tritheism, even though that is denied explicitly right in the debate itself as part of the answer that is cited. To be honest, I haven't seen any critic note that portion as it is not helpful to their narrative. I, I like how, you know, people's uh, people's intentions are being read here as if he knows what we, you know, what people are meaning when they're criticizing him. Um, but the truth, of the, the truth of the matter is, James, the language does imply tritheism, whether you want to or not, whether that's what you meant or not. It doesn't mean you are necessarily a tritheist um, for utilizing it. But you said you put yourself out there. You said those words. They have meaning. Words have implications. Words have meaning. And uh, if they have dangerous implications, they can be criticized. Yes, you do explicitly affirm monotheism, but you're utilizing terms that contradict that. And that's yeah. problematic. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, um, I think it's kind of odd that his defense for how uh, how he can't be uh, implicitly uh, affirming tritheism, and we don't say that even implicitly that he would 
he really has a tritheistic conception of God. I wouldn't say that, but if you if you follow down the rabbit hole, it, it could lead that direction. That's what I would right. say. It's, it's just it's dangerous to use the kind of language he is. Um, but but I'm confused why he's hiding under the shield of of well, I said that I don't affirm tritheism, basically, because I mean people say lots of things all the time, and as a debater one of the things he has to do a lot is show how what people's profession doesn't match the system that they have under it. For example, if Mormons consider themselves to be Christians, like they might expressly say they're Christians, but when you examine their theology, they're not. So just saying that you say that, oh, I don't believe in tritheism, or I'm not trying to impose creaturely language to God, doesn't mean that you're not actually doing that. We have to actually examine the content of what you said rather than just what what you say that you're affirming. We have to look at the system and the implications of your system um, exactly as, as I know you would do if you were debating somebody who seemed to hold to contradictory uh, views. Yep, that's exactly right. That's a, and, and I think as a debater, you're, you're almost held to a higher standard because you're putting yourself out there as kind of an expert in the field. Um, so these are the things that you kind of have to work out on the on the fly um, as you're dealing with these things. Um, but moving on again, we're, we're almost done with the article. I know we're, we're going over an hour here, but we'll finish this out. Uh, James goes on to say, now, if someone would have preferred, I expand the phrase to those subsistent relations are self-conscious, distinct willing agents who do not undermine the single, simple divine essence or the single, simple divine will. That would be wonderful. It would also prove you have never tried to respond to questions on the clock. And, and again, this is more, I think, red herring language um, in terms of the debate setting and, and answering on the clock. It's irrelevant to this discussion. Um, and again, James has no problem criticizing people on the clock and holding them to account for what they say. Um, but I think what James is doing here with this expanded phrase, one, it, it doesn't really solve anything. Um, it defends the phrase, you know, he clearly meant, he clearly meant to say centers of consciousness and still holds to it, but he's basically taking Tipton's understanding of the persons um, and is really, I think, expanding the the understanding of what he means. He's saying, okay, I'm, I'm ascribing Tipton's definition of persons onto my verbiage of three centers of consciousness, um, but he doesn't actually deny the term. You know, he's really just expanding it. Um, and I think this really causes more confusion than it helps solve uh, the problem. Um, you know, it, he's confessing the simplicity of the divine will and the divine essence. Again, that is, that we, that is, it's great that you do that, James. It's fantastic. That's good. That's good that you are holding fast to that. Um, we just need to to work out the proper implications of that. But I think this terminology isn't helpful, even though he's uh, expanded it here. And the last part of his article, he says, So in conclusion, I would put it this way. My brothers who are willing to read fully and recognize context would never focus upon attempting to turn me into a heretic. I leave it for you to determine the motives of the others. Okay, and that's how the article ends. And for our, for our part, um, he might be referring to completely different people, but... Uh, we would not try to turn you into a heretic, James White. We we don't nope. think you're a heretic. We don't nope. think that you want to divide the divine essence, but we do think that's the implications of your language. So that's the issue. It's it's really the more more of the heterodoxy of your implications than what you would actually confess and believe about. 
God. So let's 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 be careful about that. Um, but yeah, I would I would just invite the listener to to judge between us between our positions. If 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 we like James Walton and Fly are deliberately trying to uncharitably misrepresent him and accuse him of things uh, and are unwilling to listen, or if we actually have listened and we earnestly want to just refine our theology, especially in light of the great dearth of good theology proper within the last century and the great need of a reformation we need on that front, which great men like Dolezal uh, and Barcelos have been pushing for. Um, that's what we're about. We're about reforming the classical doctrine of God to come back to our biblical roots and to strip away the accretions of, of uh, Cartesian thought and existential thought and um, modern philosophical innovations getting back to biblical purity. That That's our goal here. Amen. Amen. And I will say too, um, you know, in case James or anyone might come back and, and say, well, you guys didn't do like a full exegetical discussion or something like that on these issues. Um, you know, that's an entirely different discussion in terms of fleshing all of that out in, in, in a substantial way. I would encourage you to go listen to a former episode that we did. Um, I can't remember the title, but it was criticizing um, Jeff Johnson's book, The Failure of Natural Theology. And I'll, I'll link that uh, in the YouTube video description as well. So you can get a full understanding of our confessional and exegetical reasons for, uh, you know, confessing a, a proper doctrine of God and implications thereof. And we go into great detail, spend a lot of time um, on that topic of, of the doctrine of God. And that can provide, I think, some context going uh, into this as well. Uh, lest anyone come back and say, well, you didn't deal with, you know, the text in great detail or something. Um, we have dealt with this issue in great detail. Uh, we've also had Dr. Dolezal on the show. We've had Retro Barcellus on the show. There's plenty of context to go back to and uh, bring more light to this discussion that we're talking about today. But with that, um, thank you for joining us. And this was a, a fairly long episode, but hopefully it's been helpful and helped to clarify some of these issues. Again, I'll link this in my article at the top um, to provide context and clarity. Um, but I hope it's been helpful. And with that, uh, everyone have a great weekend and long weekend for those who are celebrating MLK on Monday. Um, but if not, have a great weekend and Lord's Day tomorrow. God bless.